please open your Bibles, and the Bible reading is Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. Please, Lord, help us to listen carefully, that we might not hear the voice of a man, but the voice um, of the living God. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is God's word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Well, friends, do please keep your Bibles open at the passage which Gillian has just read for us. At the inauguration of the uh, US President this week, we heard two different views of reality on the same day. First of all, we heard from Donald Trump, who was keen to assure us that the last four years under his leadership have been a stunning success. Uh, Then we heard from Joe Biden that his administration has been left with bigger problems than any administration has had to face in living memory. They were both talking about the same circumstances, but they gave two very different views. No doubt each of them believes that uh, their view is the right one, but of course they can't both be right. And whatever we might think, it might be some time before we see the true picture. But life isn't always like that. Sometimes our belief about something or someone can change almost immediately. Uh, For example, uh, if you find yourself having an argument with someone, 
uh, you might perhaps build up a case in your mind about how unreasonable they are and how right you are. But then perhaps a bit later there's an opportunity for you to meet them over lunch or coffee or something and you find that most, if not all, of your resentment melts away. Your view changes. And of course it's equally possible for us in our sinfulness to build up a resentment or a disappointment towards God. Uh, We've managed to convince ourselves that we've been living terribly reasonably but he's not been reasonable. And it seems that in the current crisis, lots of people and many Christians have done just that. But then we turn to the Bible, and we find that the Bible changes our perception, it changes our bias. And it tells us how reasonable, in fact how infinitely reasonable God has been, and perhaps how unreasonable we are. Now, I think that's maybe a helpful way into the passage this morning. Because Mark 12, verses 1 to 12, is a parable. And it's no exaggeration to say that it's actually a summary of the entire Bible in just 12 verses. But above all, I think it's a lesson in the greatness of God. It's telling us that God is far greater than we think he is, and that we, sadly, are far worse than we think we are. Uh, We know from our passage uh, last week that Jesus is in the temple at Jerusalem. Uh, This is the place where he should have been welcomed gladly, but in fact he's been attacked uh, verbally by religious leaders who've come to him and demanded that he explain who gave him the authority to do the things he's been doing. And because they've closed their minds to his identity and to his authority, Jesus refuses to answer them. So it's surprising, isn't it, that at the beginning of chapter 12, Jesus does speak to them, but he speaks to them in a parable. Now, I suppose this story is really rather like a hand grenade being lobbed over the wall. Uh, The religious leaders have been refusing to listen to Jesus, and uh, this parable comes like a sort of a hand grenade over the wall of their resistance and opposition. And I say that because I hope you know this morning that parables are not cute little stories that Jesus uses to dumb things down. In fact, parables are very much a two-edged sword. So if you've got a receptive heart, a parable will help you, but if you've got an unreceptive heart, you'll be even more confused than you were before. That's the genius of parables. But consider this. Although the New Testament records more than 40 parables uh, of the Lord Jesus, Mark gives us only two. There are only two major parables in the Gospel of Mark, and both of them are highly significant. So in chapter 4, you've got the parable of the sower, And uh, here in chapter 12, you've got the parable of the tenants, or or sometimes called the parable of the vineyard. Both parables are about opposition, and yet both parables end in God's victory. This morning I want to make just three simple observations about the parable we're looking at this morning. And the first is, you cannot fault 
the communication of Jesus. You can't fault the communication of Jesus. So here's Jesus with a group of people who don't want to listen, but Jesus continues to speak in a way that gets past their opposition. Now think about that. It means nobody can say Jesus gives up on difficult people. So although in the last verse of chapter 11, Jesus says, I'm not going to answer your question, uh, in the first verse of chapter 12, he takes a different approach and speaks in a parable. It's rather like that event in the Old Testament, you remember, where King David has committed adultery and murder. No one was getting through to him until Nathan the prophet came along and told him the story of the man who'd stolen a sheep belonging to somebody else. And uh, God used that little story to get under David's radar and he began to realise the enormity of what he'd done. And here Jesus is communicating by parables in order to catch his enemies off guard so they'll begin to understand who he is and the insanity of their murderous opposition. And of course Jesus loves to get through to people, let's not forget that, because as the Bible tells us elsewhere, he is light. So one of the ways that Jesus communicates is through creation. All the people in the world have been placed in the theatre of his creation. He also communicates through history, because when his people were drifting and not listening, what did he do? He sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And then Jesus communicates by actually visiting our planet and leaving plenty of proofs that he's done that, and then supremely he communicates in the word of scripture, the Bible. So friends, even if somebody closes the door to his message, Jesus is perfectly capable of getting through to them in some other way. And I think this is great good news because of course we're living in a generation where people are trying their absolute hardest not to listen to the most impressive person the world has ever seen. And some of our cleverest and most able friends are doing their very best to avoid Jesus. But it's very important to realise he hasn't turned his back on them. He's still communicating with them in the various ways I've just mentioned. And Jesus does this not because he's desperate, but because we're desperate and he's kind. Notice this parable is so clear that when Jesus has finished, the opposition know precisely what he's been talking about and they want to destroy him. What's the parable about? Well, it's about a man planting a vineyard and putting some workers in the vineyard and expecting to receive fruit. But when he sends his servants to collect the fruit, all he gets in return is hostility. That's what the parable's about. But why does Jesus tell the parable? Well, I presume... It's in order to show the religious leaders just how serious their circumstances are. The parable makes it clear that the rightful owner of the vineyard is God and that the hostility of the religious leaders is evil. And it's telling them that God's son has arrived and that actually he is the rightful heir. And it's saying that Jesus knows that they're going to do violence to him. So I think it's a very convicting parable. It's showing these people that they're in the dock. God is not in the dock. They're in the dock. 
And I suspect also this parable is designed not just to convict, but to convert. Jesus wants, if possible, to change their mind and to change their direction and ultimately, of course, to change their destiny. So this parable isn't sealing their doom or leaving them no options. I think Jesus is hoping they're going to be ashamed as they listen and that they will repent. So there's our first point this morning. You cannot fault the communication of Jesus. He tells us what all of us need to know. Observation number two. You cannot fault the character of God. You cannot fault the character of God. You could read this story and think it's rather scandalous, that it's a complete disaster for Israel. But if you read the parable carefully, I think you'll see that Jesus is actually giving us a wonderful picture of the character of God. At the same time, he's giving us a rather disturbing but painfully accurate picture of the human heart. So, if you look at verse 1, uh, Jesus begins by introducing a man, meaning, of course, God himself. He tells us that the man planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. And then he rented out the vineyard to some tenant farmers, and he went away on a journey. So, here is a very clear picture from the Lord Jesus that God is a caring owner. Uh, The vineyard, of course, is a picture of his people, and uh, we know that because the Old Testament regularly described the people of God as a vine. And friends, it's a very attractive image, because, I mean, think about it, Jesus doesn't describe the people of God as a weed, uh, or as a tree with just a handful of leaves on it. No, they're a vine, a productive useful plant. And you'll notice that God puts a wall around it to protect it and also to define who his people are. He builds a wine press. Why? Because he's got a purpose for his people. Their lives are significant and he wants them to be productive. And then he builds a tower where guards can keep a lookout for enemies. And then he puts tenant farmers in to take care of the vines. They're not owners, they're stewards. And then he leaves them to do their work. What more could he possibly do? He's a very caring owner. But secondly, in verse 2, he's a fair owner. He goes to look for fruit or produce. And please notice, will you, that he goes at harvest time which, of course, is exactly the right time to look for fruit. So he sends a servant to look for what is rightfully his. Now, that's fair, isn't it? Uh, He doesn't call out of season, demanding the impossible. And he's not sending his servants to another farm, saying, it's not mine, but give me what's yours anyway. No, he sends his servants to collect what is rightfully his. He's utterly fair. No one could accuse him of being oppressive. And then you'll see in verses 3 to 5 that he's amazingly patient. In fact, his patience almost defies belief. I could never be this patient, and I doubt very much whether you could either. There's a long queue of servants being sent, a line of prophets 
being sent to Israel and they're being repeatedly beaten or killed. And the history confirms that's precisely what happened. And no doubt as the religious leaders were listening to this, they knew perfectly well that this was the history of Israel. And then in verse 6, notice this, you'll see that God is supernaturally gracious. He sends his son. Now this is almost beyond belief, isn't it? I mean, what owner in his right mind, having just watched all his servants getting beaten and killed, would send his own son? So I think suddenly now in the parable, the entire atmosphere has changed. And in verse 6, we realise that we've left the natural world and we've entered the supernatural. I mean, what sort of God would send his son into a world that would kill him? What sort of father would knowingly put his son into the hands of killers? Well, the astonishing answer is a very loving father who recognises a very great need that can't possibly be addressed in any other way. And he's going to work it all for good. And that's what we're dealing with here. Because the behaviour of this particular owner in the parable isn't natural. It's supernatural. Which is why, of course, the Apostle Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then finally, you see in the parable that God is sovereign judge in verses 9 to 11. The workers turn on the son and they kill him. And at this point, all other options have been exhausted. In verse 6, we're told that God sent the son, notice the phrase, last of all. That means there's no one else to send. There's nobody coming after Jesus. And because all options have been exhausted, now there's judgment. And in the middle of verse 9, we're told he, meaning God the Father, will come and kill those tenants. In other words, those who've rejected the Son will be destroyed. And of course, in AD 70, that is precisely what happened to the people who first heard this story. And yet, the entire plan is going to be reshaped like clay, I suppose, in the hands of God and used for tremendous good and blessing. Because the son that they kill is going to turn out to be the saviour and the stone they reject is going to turn out to be the keystone. So here they are. They're actually in the temple planning how to get rid of the son of God. And the son of God is revealing that he's going to build a replacement temple, a spiritual temple, so unexpected. And in fact, if we weren't hearing this from the lips of Jesus, I think we'd find it almost impossible to believe. So friends, if we engage with this parable honestly, and if we reflect on the historical events that Jesus is describing, I think we have to marvel at the kindness of God. How patient he is. How kind God has been to our world. How kind 
God has been to South Africa. How kind God has been to Cape Town. Do you think there's anybody in Cape Town who could honestly say on the last day, I didn't know. I had no information about these things. God didn't communicate with me. No. How kind God has been. How kind God has been to you. How kind God has been to me. We've got no excuses. And how brilliant is God that he's going to take the evil in this story and turn it into salvation. I mean, only God could do that. So there's the picture of God. You cannot fault the character of God. But notice there's also a human portrait here. Because the parable is aimed at Israel's leaders. But they're not a special, unique category. They're typical of the entire human race. So look at verse 7 with me again. Because verse 7 is making the staggering point, and I think perhaps this staggered me more than anything else this week. It's making the point that the religious leaders know precisely who Jesus is. They're not ignorant. They can't turn around and say, nobody told us. They know precisely who they're attacking. And they're attacking him because they want control and they want the inheritance. And of course the sad irony is that by attacking him, they'll actually lose the inheritance. Gillian and I were converted under the ministry of a man called Dick Lucas, who I guess has been one of the most influential preachers in the world over the last 50 years. On one occasion, Dick was preaching somewhere overseas, I can't remember where, but I think it might have been Japan, and he was speaking through an interpreter and uh, this lady, uh, this lady interpreter, was totally disinterested in Dick or what he might be about to say. But it was Good Friday, and I suppose out of politeness, she went up to Dick before the sermon and said, uh, Mr. Lucas, uh, can you please give me the main point of your talk? It was a dangerous thing, actually, to say to Dick. Um, <coughs> and it seems as if she was expecting him to say, well, uh, because it's Good Friday, this talk is going to be all about how God is full of love for everybody. But Dick said to her, my main point is this, that given half a chance, we will all do away with our maker. And Dick says that suddenly he had her full attention, her eyes opened wide, and he could see by the expression on her face that she was thinking, well now you're talking, might be worth listening to this talk. And of course that really is the message of Good Friday, isn't it? On the one hand, it's the message of God sending his son. On the other hand, it's the message of the human race doing its level best to get rid of its maker. And of course, that's what we see all around us today. And we would be like that if God hadn't intervened and brought us to our senses and to our knees. If you want to know how deep the sin is in this parable, Look at verse 12. Because having been told the entire dreadful story, having been told the full extent of the evil, having been given enough information to embarrass them, they begin to do exactly what the parable said they would do. So friends, when the gospel comes to us with power, it does two things. 
It opens our eyes to our own sinfulness, to our sickness, to our need. And how kind is God to reveal that to us. And then, of course, it takes us to the Saviour, to the doctor, the one who can make us well and whole. And you can't actually become a Christian until you follow that sequence, until you recognise the sickness and then go to the doctor, or you see the sin and you go to the Saviour. See, if you keep saying to yourself, well, you know, I'm a good person, um, basically there's nothing wrong with me, well, Jesus isn't going to do you any good. But when God begins to change you, the first thing he does is bring into your heart an awareness of sickness and sin and of his salvation. And of course, God is both willing and able to make that tremendous change in anybody. It must have been devastating, I think, when Jesus said to these religious leaders, have you, haven't you read about this? Did you miss it in the Old Testament? I mean, you people are supposed to be the experts in the Old Testament. How could you have missed the verse that says there's going to come a time when the key to the whole future of mankind is going to be rejected? That little quotation in verses 10 and 11 comes from Psalm 18. And can you believe this? It's quoted no less than in six New Testament books because it's such an important text. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, the cornerstone, the keystone. But of course, people are terribly slow, aren't they, to wake up to their need. So Mark 12 is giving us a devastating portrait of the human heart. But it's also a beautiful picture of the character of God. And it's ramming home the point that you can't fault the character of God. So finally, and very briefly, observation number three, you cannot fault the claims of Christ. You cannot fault the claims of Christ. I mean, what does this parable say to you and me this morning? Because it would be a tremendous pity if I finished preaching and we just simply uh, walked away from it and said, well, that's for someone else. If that happens, something's wrong. Now, we don't want to read things into the text that aren't there, but I think it's safe to say that in this passage there is both a serious challenge in the parable and also a serious comfort. The serious challenge is that God is looking for fruit from his people. And therefore, you and I need to examine ourselves. It means I've got to forget about what other people want from me. It means I've got to stop listening to whatever the devil whispers in my ear. And instead, I've got to go to God's word and find out what he expects of me. And then ask myself, is he finding these things in me? So he asks that I put my faith in Jesus. Has that fruit appeared? He also asks that I be a person who keeps on repenting. Not because it will save me, but because I need to throw away those things that are going to dishonour him and ruin me. Ray Ortland is a highly respected pastor in the United States and he's a very godly man. But when he's addressing pastors' conferences, he sometimes says, 
I'm never more than five minutes away from wrecking my life. Now that's a very striking statement. Think about it. Because friends, if that's true of Ray Portland, it is certainly true of me and it's certainly true of you as well. You and I are never more than five minutes away from wrecking our lives. And unless we keep repenting, we probably will. So are we repenting? Will God find the fruit of repentance to be real in our lives? And are we growing? Or are we still in some kind of spiritual preschool? I mean, whatever our age might be in human terms, is our spiritual age any more than about two and a half? Uh, If you've got children or grandchildren, you might be familiar with the phrase, the terrible twos, uh, referring to the way that um, two-year-olds can get locked into a tantrum and no matter how hard you try, you can't talk them out of it. Well, spiritually speaking, have we progressed beyond the terrible twos? Or do we have tantrums if God doesn't arrange things the way we like them? I'm simply asking you that if God comes looking for fruit, according to his word, would you be able to say, he's invested in me, and yes, he's producing fruit in me. So that's the serious challenge. But the second thing is, there's also a serious comfort here. And that is that Jesus is able to look his enemies in the eye and say, you've got absolutely no idea how wonderful things are going to be. Because in verse 11, the word Jesus uses is the word marvellous. Not a word we use very much today. But what he's saying is, when you've done your worst, when you've rejected me, when you've rejected the stone, and I've fulfilled my part as saviour so that the keystone is in place and God begins to build his temple, the end result is going to be way beyond your wildest imagination. It's as if Jesus is holding in his hand a DVD of human history. And as he looks at his enemies and says, right now, it looks like you're in a position of great power, but not for long. And right now, it looks as if I'm in a position of great weakness, but not for long. Because what seems to be terrible now is actually going to end in triumph and because I've got the DVD, I know. And friends, if you've got a Bible, you also have the DVD. And we can trust this very special comfort that Jesus points to here that everything is going to turn out to be marvellous. This isn't fiction. This is something Jesus has proved by his death, by his resurrection, and which he's going to complete on his return. So, friends, have you got the picture? You cannot fault the communication of Jesus, and you cannot fault the character of God, and you cannot fault the claims of Christ, because he's got a claim for our fruitfulness. And he holds out a very great comfort this morning to everyone who belongs to him. So let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you for what we see in your word. 
We thank you for the picture of your great and gracious character. We thank you for revealing something of ourselves to us. We thank you that you go on being patient and kind towards us, offering pardon, offering salvation. We pray that you would help us to be a fruitful people. We pray that you would work in us and through us what is pleasing to you. And we pray that you would help us to be a confident, hopeful, assured people, knowing that because Christ has risen and is seated on the throne, that there will be great triumph after all the trouble. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.